0: Just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer.
1: Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Katie Balls. This week, as the country goes to the polls for the European elections, we ask... Has Brexit devoured the far left? I also speak to an unlikely Boris supporter, Matthew Paris, on the merits of a Bojo leadership for Remainers. And last, do you own books to read or to show off? First up, Labour's constructive ambiguity on Brexit has served it well since the 2017 election. But as the country votes in European elections this week, has the party miscalculated in being too ambiguous? Nick Cohen writes in this week's cover article that Labour should have positioned itself as the party of Remain, and now it faces being picked off by the Lib Dems on one side and the Brexit party on the other. To discuss, Sienna Rogers, editor of Labour List, joins me now, and Nick joins us down the line. Nick, in your cover piece in this week's Spectator, you say Labour is being picked apart by new enemies. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, what I mean is, is the anger in Liberal England—the absolutely white-hot anger about what is happening to the country, about the threat of No Deal Brexit—is just tearing through the old Labour constituency, driving voters away in their millions, and Labour, in a pattern you know, anyone who studies history will be very familiar with, Corbyn and co arrive in power, claim, claiming to be great radicals and revolutionaries, and all the rest of it. And suddenly they look very, very conservative figures who can't understand the forces at work around them. And you can see it's happening in the local elections, you can see it's happening, I'm sure you'll see it happening today's European elections, of people who were Labour giving up on the party because, on the great issue of the day, the most important question facing Britain, probably my lifetime actually, Labour is sitting on the fence, it's trying to Hide the fact it's a pro brexit party, it's sort of offering a second referendum then, withdrawing the offer, and the great basis of their support among the young, among educated people who were, used to be on the left, is, 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 is draining away from them. And who knows, uh, perhaps they, they will be able to respond next week, but I wonder if they've got the uh, intellectual capacity or the political ability to do so.
1: Nick, in a way, though, there has been a reason for the constructive ambiguity in the Labour Party's Brexit position. The fact they are trying to appeal to remain voters and leave voters. Do you think by being fairly ambiguous on Brexit, saying some things in favour of a second referendum, saying some things in favour of Brexit deal over the past year or so, it's done the party any favour at all?
2: Well, it did in the past. I mean, it did in 2017. But as I say in the piece, there's an old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's not doing them any favours. Now, I would dispute, and more seriously, many, many cephologists and many Labour MPs would dispute about Labour's need to appeal to leave voters. First of all, Labour, Labour support is or was, I mean it's draining away now, overwhelmingly Remain. Second, it is a very odd argument. You never hear, you won't hear in the Tory leadership election journalists saying to Boris Johnson or whoever you've got on, Dominic Raab, but how are you going to appeal to remain voters? It's only ever said to the Labour Party, the problem is in our 1st past electoral system, alienate your core vote, which, you know, I'm from the north of England, and this parody, this very southern journalistic parody of the north as Brexitania, where everyone you know, is a, is a closet racist and uh, and hates you. Simply isn't true. Labour support in Northern constituencies is, is again likely to be, and in some cases, overwhelmingly pro-remain. And the idea that you go out there as, uh, as some Labour MPs are and spend your whole time talking to people who don't vote for you, and probably with Corbyn as leader, are not going to vote for you, and no time talking to the people who do vote for you or did vote for you, well, um, it deserves more scepticism than it receives, Katie. I'll put it like that.
1: Uh, Sienna, do you agree that Labour's current position of trying to say leave things to leave voters and now and then remain things to remain voters is losing the party support?
0: I think that's a fair assessment of what has happened in the recent local elections, and I think it's what's going to happen today, people currently at the polls. The European elections, I think Labour did you know, had disappointing results earlier this month and today it might even come third behind the Lib Dems and I think that could influence the future of Labour's Brexit strategy. But personally, I would say that actually the constructive ambiguity position is still the least worst position that it could take. I think basically committing to either the Leave voters or the Remain voters would be quite a big mistake. Nick, in your piece, you, you point out that the
1: revolutionaries in the Labour Party aren't so revolutionary when it comes to opposing Brexit. But is that not because, in a way, Brexit, if you look at lexiteer arguments, is seen as a revolutionary position in itself?
2: Uh, yes, a point that is not discussed enough. It is a, the Labour leadership, Corbyn, MacDonald, Milne, McCluskey, the people who, who call the shots are from a very, very peculiar strain of post-Marxist thought. Corbyn, Andrew Murray, his advisor is actually from the Communist Party of Britain, are from a strand of thought associated with the Communist Party, with Tony Benn in the 70s, which essentially is a mirror image of Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson. They say, we can cut ourselves from Europe, we can um, cut ourselves off, off from the world and have socialism in one country. I mean, Johnson and Farage might want small-state capitalism, but on the big geopolitical question, they are the same. And again, this is coming back to fooling Labour voters. And could I make one final point, not having a go at Siena? I just think, though, constructive ambiguity on the great issue of the day, the greatest issue of the day, an issue, incidentally, that's not going to go away, whatever happens, even if somehow a withdrawal agreement goes through, Brexit is, is, to my mind, such a mistake because it's going to go on for at least seven, probably ten years. There's no escaping the damn thing. To just be ambiguous about it is failing the nation. To not have a coherent, clear policy, it means you can't talk honestly to the public. Being ambiguous, being a bit too clever by half isn't going to wash.
1: Now, whether or not constructive amb- ambiguity is a good idea, there is a chance that Jeremy Corbyn is going to come under a lot of pressure in the coming weeks to end that ambiguity when we start to get the results of the European elections in on Monday and onwards from there. Looking at the two sides of the debate, Sienna, it often seems as though with any result, everyone can read what they want into it about Brexit. Mm. Do you have any sense that this is going to come to a head and the leaders office are going to come up with a more firm stance on what the party is going to do on Brexit? Or do you think this fudge can go on for, for some time to come?
0: I think the leader's office is certainly going to come under a lawful lot of pressure if Labour does come third in terms of highest vote share today in these European elections. But as I say, I do think that so-called constructive ambiguity, I'd actually take issue with that as a name. But that position still has merit because of, I mean, so many reasons. I don't think... I mean, I find it odd that Nick's piece frames this as a very factional position when actually there are MPs like Gareth Snell and Ruth Smith, hardly be called Corbynites, who are on the other side of that debate, but also Lisa Nandy, uh, Melanie On, people who are, you know, really strongly against another referendum, Stephen Kinnock, Lucy Powell, lots of Labour MPs, again, not Corbynites and not Benites, anything like that. And they're really against that. And that's just you know, it's not just Corbyn going against his whole parliamentary party and his whole membership either. It's a it's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, the the problems with the Remain position, turning into a Remain party, don't just stop at the ideological, which are obviously about, you know, you can't pledge to overturn the result of the twenty sixteen referendum without first implementing that result, however difficult that is. There are lots of practical problems as well, because I mean, there isn't a majority for another referendum. It's unclear how people's voters actually intend to enact that policy right now because they've just been offered a vote on it in the passage of the withdrawal agreement bill and turned it down. I mean, they were going to get a vote. They they didn't. They refused to do it because they know that they don't have the numbers in the Commons. So are those MPs then going gonna to become revoke Article 50 MPs? Now, that, in terms of democratic validity of that argument, it's very questionable. Now, to put in a shameless
1: plug right right now for another article in the spectator this week by myself i've been in dudley and nick the brexit party were in dudley dudley north is a marginal seat with a tiny majority currently held by labor it voted heavily to leave i think around 67 percent do you really believe that were labor to say out and proud we are going for a second referendum the party would be able to hold a seat like dudley north in a general election
2: The problem is, is if they carry on trying to sit on the fence, you are taking the vast, I'd say, well, the latest poll is eighty-eight percent of 2017 Labour voters want to remain in the EU. You're saying, we can ignore you and think about other people. Well, you don't have to speculate on what's going to happen. It already is happening. They are starting to desert Labour. And to go back to what Sienna was saying, I would have less argument with Melanie On and uh, Lucy Powell and MPs. You know, I've got quite a lot of time for if they did what no po- which very few politicians, forgive me, are doing across the political spectrum. If they said, OK, we don't want to overturn the referendum as well, but went to their constituents and said, having Brexit is going to hurt you. This is any form of Brexit is going to hit, well, Lucy's seat is Manchester, central central Manchester probably all right. Parts of her constituency are very poor and still industrial, you know, it's going to hurt Hull, it's going to hurt the Dom Valley, and lay out the hard choices. I have never seen, you know, one one shouldn't be too cynical. I think I've been over cynical in the past and not cynical enough now. I have never seen a failure of political leadership and of political honesty like we're seeing now. Uh, everyone goes on about Winston Churchill, but there's no promise of blood, sweat, toil and tears. There's no one saying, yes, we can do this. Yes, we can even have a no deal Brexit, but by God, it's going to hurt and it's going to take forever. And explaining to the public what the consequences are. Instead, you know, we sit here talking about tactics and moving blocks of voters around.
1: Now, finally, it may be the case, Nick, that in a way what you're saying will will come to be because this labour double squeeze might have to end when Labour holds its annual party conference. There is an expectation that they didn't do it the last time, they went for a Brexit fudge, but this time the membership, which is very pro-EU, will vote and make it formal Labour Party policy to hold a second referendum. If I, the,
2: I, I hear there are already moves underway to make sure that happens.
1: So in a way, Sienna, there's only really what between now and until Labour conference for Jeremy Corbyn to decide to not go for a second referendum is that right
0: well so obviously the position has shifted now in favour of another referendum and Labour has whipped for that and to no great effect already so yes there are definitely moves underway you already you couldn't quite say it's the most
1: enthusiastic second referendum campaign coming from Jeremy Corbyn though could you
0: It's not. But then again, in terms of parliamentary stuff, you know, the whip just isn't effective anymore on Brexit issues. So MPs will be voting against that however hard Corbyn whips for it. And and actually, you know, Nick Brown is the whip and, you know, he's very strongly in favour of a people's vote. So, you know, he was he was quite strong on that. So I think they did max out their votes there. I mean, yes, it's true. At conference, I certainly think that activists made a lot of compromises in September and they won't be doing that again. And also, the left is more deeply divided now. You can see that from you know, Laura Parker, who's Momentum's national coordinator, standing as an MEP in these elections. She's been very frustrated about having been put fourth on the list, on the regional list for London rather than third, below Katie Clark, who used to work for Corbyn. She's been basically running the campaign along with Keir Starmer, with allegedly little support from. The main party. So, all of those tensions are going to come up. But hopefully, from the leader's office perspective, the Tories, I mean, are going to elect a newer leader. And maybe that will change things because a general election will be far more likely. And that will be the
1: way they break the logjam. Thanks, Sienna. Thanks, Nick. Next. Rather unlikely support for Boris Johnson's leadership campaign comes in this week's issue. Self-professed Romaniac Matthew Paris says that whoever is the next leader will have to tell the country that Brexit must be paused, and he thinks Boris is the best man for the job. He joins me down the line now, together with James Forsythe in the office. Matthew, what is the silver lining from your perspective to a Boris premiership?
3: Well, I should explain first that it really is a black cloud for me. I think he'd be an absolute catastrophe as Prime Minister. But there's one thing I can imagine him being able to do that I can't imagine any of the other candidates for the leadership except perhaps Rory Stewart being able to do, and that is to tell the British people that the whole Brexit thing hasn't worked and we've got to tear it up and start again. He, he wouldn't say that we're going to stay forever in the EU, but he would say that we need to revoke this Article 50 declaration and go straight back to the drawing board and think about what it is that we want. And Boris is a very persuasive orator, and I can imagine him making it sound as the French say, like a reculer pour mieux sauter, a standing back in order to take a better leap, a a bringing of the little boats um, over from uh, Dunkirk under heavy enemy fire so so that we could regroup. He he could make it sound as though revoking Article 50 or having a second referendum, and I think he would just revoke, make it sound as though it was some kind of uh, wise strategic move rather than the humiliation, which in fact it would be.
1: Now, in your column, you lay out how you expect that this could come about. And you're not suggesting that Boris Johnson is going to go through the Tory leadership contest saying revoke Article 50. In fact, quite the opposite. He no. would try try and renegotiate with Brussels, perhaps at that point try and go for no deal. But you think he'll be stopped and that will lead him to having to revoke?
3: Yes. It isn't entirely absent from my thoughts that he might in his bleaker moment have contemplated the possibility of having to do this, but I certainly am not saying that it's his secret plan. I suppose what his secret plan will be, or what it will be, it'll be the, far from secret, it'll be the plan that he rehearses during the leadership campaign, assuming he is shortlisted by, by Parliament. He'll be saying I am going to go back to Brussels confidently saying we are going to get a better deal than the one you've given us. And if you don't give it to us, we will leave without a deal or with a managed new deal or something like that. And and my confidence and the knowledge on the part of the other 27 that I really will leave without a deal if I don't get it. That is what is going to get us a better deal, Get our cake and eat it, as he has put it. That's how he'll conduct his leadership campaign. And so if he wins, the first thing he'll have to do, actually, probably the first thing he'll have to do is call a general election, but assuming he doesn't, the first thing he'll have to do is uh, go to Brussels and, as it were, come back with a piece of paper in his hand, except the piece of paper will say, they're being unreasonable, they won't give us a better deal, I've done my best, I've banged the table, and they won't. And and that's, that's the point at which the possibility of tearing it up and starting again comes
4: in.
1: James, is Boris Johnson the man to pause
4: Brexit? I think Matthew should maybe see a slightly different silver lining to a Boris Johnson premiership. I think Boris Johnson might well end up going for a second referendum, which is if you consider that Tory MPs are desperate to avoid a general election and there is a massive practical problem in any general election before Brexit has happened for the Tories, which is that the Brexit party would stand and would take a chunk out of a Tory vote, which would make it very hard for the Tories to win a majority. And I wonder whether Boris Johnson might say, look, Parliament is blocking me on what I want to do. I am going to roll the dice and go for a referendum with the government campaigning full bore to leave. And I'm going to bank on my campaigning skills and getting the public to tell the MPs, no, we really did mean it. We really do want to leave. I mean, that's the silver lining that Matthew, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that this is, I'm not saying this is lightly, but this is, if, if, if Matthew was seeking to console himself about the prospects of Boris Johnson premiership, that is the consolation I, I think Matthew would be, would, would be better off seeking.
1: Matthew, you've previously written in a Times column that the Tories have got to end their affair of Boris because you had to look at the dishonesty and recklessness that Boris Johnson has previously exhibited. Would you say that you're now warming to him as a candidate or is it purely the sense that he could be the person to stop Brexit from happening?
3: Uh, Absolutely not the former. I'm not warming to him as a candidate. I think it would be a a very bad move indeed by the Conservative Party and I I think that uh, he would have a lot of trouble in a general election uh, as his whole story unfolded and as I I expect he would floundered on the stump when, when asked technical questions of any kind. I do find James's scenario entirely plausible. Boris would say, what are we afraid of? We're not afraid of another referendum. We can have as many referendums as as those idiots like. Uh, the people will return the same answer. And I, I'm I'm delighted at the prospect that we can show the uh, British government and we can show the British media that uh, we haven't changed in our view. And I'm looking forward, relishing the idea of leading a Leave campaign in, a, in another referendum. He'd do it really well, He'd do, and he might win, he might.
1: Um, James, all of these scenarios that we're currently discussing rest on the idea that no deal isn't going to be something that is feasible or possible But if you look, for example, at a recent report by the Institute for Government, there is now a suggestion that the parliamentary procedures for voting against No Deal have run out. And there is a chance that where Parliament have voted to try and prevent No Deal before, MPs would be slightly powerless in terms of this new deadline of the end of October when the extension runs out. Do you think No Deal is possible?
4: I think no deal is definitely possible. I think one of the reasons why the kind of Cooper-Letwin-Bowles plan to legislate against no deal succeeded was that Theresa May's heart really wasn't in fighting it. She didn't want to do no deal. And for that reason, she didn't use... There was a massive drafting error in the bill. And the government kind of pointed it out kindly to them and and let them correct the error. You know, a prime minister who is really determined to do no deal wouldn't be guaranteed that they would succeed. But they would have a, they would have a chance. You know. And I think that one of the things that would be in their favour is that lots of Tory MPs who come from Matthew's wing of the party who really don't like the idea of no deal, they admit that in private, however much they fear no deal, they accept that a Corbyn premiership would be worse for the country in both the short a medium and long terms than no deal. And so they wouldn't actually bring down the government in a vote of confidence, over the issue. I think the wild card to chuck in here is John Bercow, who I think kind of regards it slightly as his job to allow Parliament to stop no deal. So although it isn't obvious what the parliamentary mechanism is, I suspect that John Bercow might well try and invent one. But I think a, a, a Prime Minister who really wanted to do no deal has a substantial chance of getting their way. I have um, was just looking at that Institute for Government
3: report And there is no doubt that a sufficiently determined and unscrupulous government might be able to, so to speak, pull a fast one and get us out of the European Union before Parliament had been able to stop that happening. But there would be the most enormous stink if that were to happen. I I would call that a coup against parliamentary democracy, a coup against representative democracy, to wait until Parliament wasn't looking, so to speak, and and then suddenly get us out of the European Union, leave, without Parliament having the chance to have its say, I think would be entirely unconscionable. And I can imagine riots in the streets if that were to happen.
4: Can can I float another possible Boris silver lining here? I, I think one of the massive problems that this Theresa May deal has is how badly it has been sold and how... Eurosceptics or Brexiteers, whatever adjective you want to use, don't trust her motivations. I can imagine another scenario, which is Boris adds off to Brussels. He gets something or he decides to do something in domestic law. And it's not a, it wouldn't seem on the face of it to be a massive change. But he then sells this change with such conviction. And because of the trust he has built up on the bank with Brexiteers, he can somehow get something not that dissimilar to the current deal, over the line. I think that's another possibility. I think one of the things that we've seen is that Theresa May, and you saw it with her second referendum thing, she she manages to land things in precisely the wrong way and so she ends up upsetting both sides of the debate. I can imagine a scenario in which somehow Boris does that or he decides to deal with the backstop, for example, by accepting accepting checks on the Irish Sea.
1: James, can I rain on your silver lining yeah. briefly? No, I'm very happy to. This is just... Given that we now have Nigel Farage's Brexit party, don't you think that were Boris Johnson to get one change and really sell it, you would immediately have a betrayal narrative coming from the Brexit party telling lots of Leave voters that this was not Brexit?
4: Yes, but I mean, there's a big difference. One of the problems that Theresa May has had is that she's not a Brexiteer. If Boris Johnson, the man who led the Leave campaign, the man who is the reason why, you know, ultimately Leave triumphed, I think, you know, I think if it hadn't been for him, I don't think it could have got to 52% of the vote. If he was saying, this is Brexit, then I think that would have, that would make it harder for Nigel Farage to, to do this. I'm very struck how someone who was at this big Farage rally in Olympia the other night says that the one moment when Farage Almost kind of didn't have the crowd in the palm of his hand was when he tried to launch an attack on Boris Johnson. That even all these people who turned up the Brexit party rallies, they're not yet ready to accept that kind of Boris has broken faith with them. And so I think that, I mean, sorry, Matthew.
3: I think that with Boris as Prime Minister, he would be a bit of a sitting duck for Nigel Farage if anybody could mock and undermine uh, Boris Johnson, it, it would be Nigel Farage. I, th- I think your scenario is actually plausible. If you listen, well worth a, a rerun, if you listen to Michael Gove defending Theresa May's deal at the dispatch box, he's pretty persuasive. And a fairly persuasive case could be made. But you would now have uh, you Nigel Farage and the Brexit party raising hell to one side, and they would carry, I think, quite a few on the right of the Conservative Party with them. And the fundamental point is that the deal is a lousy deal. And that's not Theresa May's fault. Any deal that's half in, half out is a lousy deal, because half in, half out is almost well, is inevitably not as good as either being completely in or does it nor does it hold out the prospects that being completely out does, at least to Brexiteers. So, all we would do is, is move into the two year or whatever transition phase and start the argument all over again.
1: Now, in Matthew's piece, James, he makes the point that there are two other candidates who have the ability to break bad news, Rory Stewart and Michael Gove, so could perhaps perform this function. I was just wondering in terms of going for a no deal Brexit, we expect nearly. Every candidate, perhaps other than Roy Stewart, in the Tory leadership race to talk about at least threatening a no deal Brexit with the EU. Which candidates do you think would actually go as far as to try and deliver a no deal Brexit?
4: This is a very interesting question. And I think it depends again, slightly what you mean by no deal of the mainstream. Candidates Dominic Raab, I think, will establish himself as the, you know the most prepared to do it. I, I'm very struck w- that when you hear Boris Johnson talk about Brexit, he doesn't talk about actively wanting No Deal. He is just convinced that if someone turned up who was serious about No Deal and prepared to do it, the EU would would offer up some concessions. Uh, so, Dominic Raab, say, I think there is a very interesting strategic dilemma for uh, the cabinet ministers in this race, which is I think most of them will talk about trying to get a change to withdrawal agreement. And the problem for them is, at that point, they then get into a bidding war where they are then outbid by Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab. And I think the kind of question you've got to get to is, you know, how do you say, yes, I would try to change the withdrawal agreement, but here's my plan B and everyone needs a plan B. I think that that is quite a a difficult question. I, I think Rory Stewart will probably be the only candidate to be completely explicit that they wouldn't even put no deal on the table.
3: I go along with quite a bit of that, actually. I think that Boris, when it came to the crunch and saw himself, he saw himself as a prime minister about to take us out with no deal, I I think he might actually get cold feet. Oddly enough, uh, Michael Gove, who has in some ways been a bit less hardline, well, much less hardline than Dominic Raab or or Boris Johnson, but I can imagine Michael Gove not getting cold feet, and Michael Gove actually getting the bit between his teeth. He's quite a driven person and he's driven by ideas. And I, I could imagine Michael Gove if, if, if we reach that impasse saying, well, I'm not going to back down. And Boris Johnson, if we reach that impasse saying, well, I think I will back down.
1: Thanks, Matt and James. To hear more from myself and James on Brexit and the impending Tory leadership contest, do tune into our daily Coffeehouse Shots podcast, which you can find at Spectator dot forward slash shots and last are books reading or showing off daily express columnist virginia blackburn comes clean in this week's issue about the careful curating that went behind her new hallway bookshelf it's home to 18th century chinese classics but not her beloved crime fix and rom-coms which are instead relegated to the side room so is a bookshelf just an opportunity to show off Virginia joins me now, together with Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Virginia, you recently had a new bookshelf installed, or
5: bookshelves. Tell us what is revealed to you about yourself. Um, It's revealed to me that I'm an absolutely crashing snob, actually, because I have filled it with the books that I've either read once or I aspire to read one day. All of the great classics, whereas the stuff that I actually adore and go back to time and time again... We're talking a bit of chicklit here. We're talking a few thrillers here. Have all been banished to the spare room where people won't necessarily see them. And um, Stig, have you had a similar experience with your bookshelves? No,
6: my mine are. We moved house about six months ago, and it was just a question of sort of getting them in. I quite like the thrillers, and I like pulpy books. I like different coloured books. I like the different feels of books. You should. What was the What was the book that you've you've most put in the centre of your bookshelf? What's the thing you're most sort of proud of?
5: The one that I am really proud of and that I try to guide people unobtrusively to without them realising what I'm doing is the Just five, waving your arms right. <laughs> or maybe or maybe plucking one of the, the volumes from the bookshelf it's the story of the stone which is an 18th century Chinese novel which I think in, we all know in five <laughs> volumes by Zi Quinn five volumes and none of them short I might add actually and I have actually read the whole thing you have read the whole thing I have oh, read the right, whole then. thing so yes yeah, so I, I like to boast about that from time to
1: time now Stig you suggest that you are not I suppose high maintenance when it comes to the books on your shelves yeah. but what would you say is the most lowbrow book you have exhibited? Oh well I've got
6: I've got a lot of thrillers I don't want to say low I don't really want to say lowbrow I mean I've got big chunk Dennis Wheatley books from the 50s uh, he used to write those satanic historical books I've got a load of Lee Child in a big run I've got a load of Michael Connolly but I don't want to say they're lowbrow I mean I've got I've got Dickens and stuff like that to sort of raise the tone a bit. Oh, John D. MacDonald, who Sam Leith of of this parish is a massive fan of. He wrote these pulpy... Thrillers in the 60s, and they've got these brilliant, you know, American mass market paperbacks. They're very small books, but they're very lurid. So I have a whole shelf of them, and they're sort of lime green and, and day glow pink, and I think they look, they look wicked.
5: That's, but, that's making a style statement as much as a literary statement. Well, they're it? great, but I reread the books all the time, <laughs> so I,
6: I, they're, they're useful as well.
1: Now, Virginia, when it comes to your efforts, would you say that so far your book arrangement has proved a successful way to show off?
5: Oh yes, I mean, no question about it. Yes, I'm always looking for new ways to show off, and that that's certainly one of them. But sometimes it backfires a little bit. I have just inherited a lot of books about music from my late father's library, and I had friends around the other day who noticed the four-volume biography of Richard Wagner by Ernest Newman and says, did you enjoy it, Virginia? <laughs> I know. That's still on the to-do list, actually. That's the so problem. If
6: there's a lot of aspirations, do you ever pretend to have read them?
5: No, I haven't, actually. I'm very honest, actually. Oh, that's if, I, if I'm ignorant, I... I Fess up! But the things now, I am definitely going to read so those four volumes. So the next time someone tries to show me up, I'll be able to. I always think you can get away
6: that. with it because most people won't have read anything. Oh, you can! You can. I know, but it's you cheating. Should.
5: Yeah, yes. you should,
6: you're quite.
1: <laughs> now, when it comes to using a bookshelf to convey a certain message, you, you are not alone. I have plenty of male friends who have carefully curated a bookshelf in their flat, partly to prove or at least seem more attractive to certain female suitors. Sting, I, I know you're happily married, <laughs> yes. but is there is this something you've ever done in a previous life or perhaps no friends who have done similar? No,
6: I can't. I was trying to think of whether I've ever done this. I don't think I have. Uh, I'm not sure what, I, what What do they curate? What's, what's a... I, I think yes, I'm to curious
1: to think these books are. The sense I've got is you need to show that you're intellectual, yeah. potentially artistic. I would say a John Paul Sartre book would be something but they might they, no, they, have like to show a deeper side combined with something perhaps from the art spectrum that wouldn't work for you. Well, I want to know... Yeah,
6: so Sartre would put you off. Would you... Because I remember interviewing for front row Linda Grant, the novelist, and she said that... She, people would, I can't remember if she was going to people's house or they would come to her house, but there's a real value judgment you make of people when you look at their bookcase. And I was wondering is there anything that would put you off if you went to someone's house and it was just Ayn Rand books? Or would you leave? Would you leave? Or it was, you know. (laughs) The, the, the Jacob Rees-Mogg latest one in the middle, would you re, Would you think, well, well, this is a bit questionable taste, then maybe they won't won't be particularly uh, fun in any other aspect? I don't, I don't know.
5: I don't think it's the, the books themselves, but their presentation. If you went to someone's flat or house or whatever, and they had a lot of leather-stamped books that were obviously from a book club, and they'd never been opened yeah. ever once, so I, I think that would be rather off-putting.
6: Or Linda Grant said, no novels. If someone can't empathise, if someone doesn't have fiction in their house, or no books at all, is that not even... Imagine you went to someone's house and there was no books whatsoever. I think you'd make drastic decisions fairly quickly about, hang on, is this, is this really going to prosper as a... Do you not think... A no book uh, household what, is a is a creepy thing.
5: No books I agree, but not no novels. I mean I I speak as a great lover of the novel, but one of the most cultured people I know who is you know, who paints himself and is interested in all arts, the one thing he's not interested in is literature. And so mm-hmm. he has very few novels, but he has other books has other
6: about books. other things. Have you yeah. ever been in anyone's house with no books?
1: I don't think I have. I've been to an unfurnished house before, which you know, when people have forgotten to put anything on the walls, and I, I always think it does send a si- warning sign.
6: And nothing on the wall. I, th- I would be left to my own devices. I would have at university. I had nothing in my room but just sort of empty wine glasses. I'm not sure I'm that interested in environment. <laughs> I just had it. Just it was just. But I had book. I had books. You, so. Yeah.
1: So you could add the personality that way. Yeah, maybe now, that's right. Virginia, are you at all tempted to try and own your less highbrow bookshelf choices I mean they could provide actually quite a, an entertaining talking point when you have friends around
5: oh yes no I do actually they, they, I say they're not on display they are just not quite as obviously. I mean when people come into my flat they're hit by the sort of the big stuff straight away but if they manage to sort of you know infiltrate into the lesser corners of it that's when they find I mean I don't know if you know anything by Lauren Henderson but she wrote a fantastic series of books uh, featuring a, a female detective called Sam Jones yeah about, oh wonderful absolutely yeah. wonderful and you certainly wouldn't call them highbrow, but they're very good fun. So but yes, they, indeed should be fair, to, they should be they should be They are, the they answer. are, just not, just not right there when What's you What's the are, book
6: you're most ashamed of?
5: Well, <laughs> I do own a Geoffrey Archer, but the reason I own that... a Jeffrey Archer. Well, I think everyone owns a Geoffrey Archer, but okay, the reason own I own Archer. it is that it was signed to me by, by the great man himself on a, on a particular <laughs> night, so I don't, I don't really you want got, to get rid of it. I've, got, like I've
6: it. got a couple of them. Stig, they're not good though I think we can all agree that they're, I haven't they're read not mine good.
5: actually but I will which do so, so? <laughs> can you remember which it I is? can't remember no no
1: Stig it's clear you're, it's clear you're very well read but, but going to another person's house using that knowledge is there any book you could see on the shelf and become immediately suspect that the owner hadn't actually read it oh
6: what is the most unread book is a really good one, because it always used to be Stephen Hawking's brief history of time which is very very hard to read I don't know if you've ever tried reading it. No. I've tried reading it. And, you know, it's sold, like, it sold millions of copies. And there's no way on earth more than 5% of the people who own that book have read it. It's really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a science dunce, so I'm not a great example of it. So there's books like that where you think they're so hard. And then I suspect there's some obvious... You know, Proust in the French would make me a little suspicious because it's kind of a beautiful thing, but you wonder really where the... There are certain things which are very, very signalling of highbrow taste. And either that's because the person has highbrow taste or it's just a bit bit blatant, that you think there are some blatant... They're a blatant high art that looks like a little too tryhard. I
5: think you're being terribly unfair. I've got some. I've got quite a few books in German, but the thing is, I do actually speak German. So I'd go. be terribly hurt if someone came well, into my flat and all, instantly made this. quite
1: stuff. happy. If someone tried to catch you out, and you could simply. That's well, now we true. know you don't lie about
6: it. So, you, if you said you've read the German books, I would. Well, I would actually, the, you. the
5: best the best catching out that was ever done was um, some years ago when I shared a flat with someone, and someone visitors to the flat were sort of annoyed by the number of books I had, and they picked up one and opened it, and it was one of those books about mathematics that didn't even have numbers; it was just letters p to the quality of y, and so on and so forth. And they said, "Why does Virginia even pretend that she can, you know, read this book?" To which my flatmate knew the answer and replied, her father wrote it. So.
2: Oh, that is good. (laughs) That is good.
1: Now, finally, just for listeners who are perhaps thinking about what they can add to their bookshelves following this discussion, what are you both reading at the moment?
6: Oh, I am reading a book. It's a, I'm just trying to think of the name of it now. It's called The King Must Die and it's by Mary Renault and it's a classical, historical novel. She wrote it in the 50s. It's one regarded as one of the sort of uh, classic novels. It's really, really good. It's about Theseus. It's a bit overwritten for taste of the day, but it's, it's pretty fun.
5: Needless to say, the author of the book I'm about to mention, has his name has gone out of my head, but I can tell you the title of the novel. It's um, A Gentleman in Moscow. Do you, it's a thriller. Do you, is that a thriller? It's not exactly a thriller. It's about a white Russian who spends his life in the Metropol Hotel, because oh. he's, Let's he's,
6: Google this. We must be able to it's find It's fantastic, out that, actually. Yeah.
5: Will, will that get a coveted place on your. Absolutely.
6: <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to say <laughs> okay. so we can find out who it is. Amor Towns?
5: Amor Towns, yes. That's what, he's American, actually. Yeah. But his knowledge of 1920s Moscow is fantastic. And you so recommend it? I very highly recommend yeah, okay. it, yeah.
1: Thanks, Virginia. Thanks, Dig. That's it for this week. But if you enjoyed this podcast, do check out my own podcast series, Women with Balls. In it, I interview women at the top of their respective games. Recent guests include the Labour Brexiteer Kate Hoey, Tory leadership contenders, or are Liz Truss and Andrea Leadsom, and the broadcast presenter Emma Barnett and Kay Burley from Sky. You can listen to all of these at spectator.co.uk forward slash balls. And While you're here, do also pick up this week's issue if you don't have it already to read all the pieces discussed in this episode as well as Conrad Black's diary and Jeremy Clark on planning his mother's funeral. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.